All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Bizzlecast 60. I can't believe we're at 60 already. It seems like I was just celebrating 50. There's been a ton of developments over the last 10 episodes and the last couple months. I am here with uh, Papa Bizzle, who officially becomes a co-contributor with his third appearance. Uh, look out, look out. <laughs> I, I'd call you senior contributor, but I wouldn't want to hurt your please, feelings. Please, please. <laughs> Hey, that just came to me now. Um, yeah. So, um, so, so, uh, my dad and I recorded a just general movies overview podcast in like mid to late May, right? Like we had just seen Cap. I'm not sure if we had seen X Men. So this is like mid to late May of 2016. But we looked back over really the last three to five years of movies, talking about Birdman and The Revenant and Spotlight and Twelve Years a Slave and how all these movies fit in. Yeah. Um, it's been mostly popcorn stuff since then. Yeah. Um, so just a quick note to the Bizzlecast listeners, we may end up talking about some of those topics. Uh, that will either get released uh, attached to the end of this or as a supplementary podcast. But um, just a, a note that, that this is actually the fourth podcast, uh, or 3.5, I suppose. So, Dad. Yes. So in that podcast, we talked about a lot of great movies. High class, yes. you know, all-time great. Yeah. Our tour, virtuosic movies. Yes. And now we have Tom Hiddleston dating Taylor Swift. <laughs> the Tay Tay. Tay Tay. <laughs> um, this is interesting to me on so many levels. And just to tease Bizzlecast listeners, I, I just dropped this on my dad. He knew I was going to bring it up. We were going to talk about the Bourne movie, which we really liked more than the ratings. We we're going to talk about Hunt for the Wilder People, which is the best year, uh, movie this year by far. Um, we, uh, we're going to talk about Star Trek Beyond, but also how like all the suburb movies are grossing the same kind of mediocre amount. We've got a lot of substance, but I have loved Tom Hiddleston since I first saw him as Loki in The Avengers in 2012. And Dad, I remember having this this feeling when I when I when I first saw Tom Hiddleston, because um, you know they powder him down, yep, to be super pale. He has a great evil face, even though his his standing face in real life is just smiley, and he's the sweetest guy. That's right. But he's got a great evil face, and they make him look, you know, and, and he is lo- he lost like forty pounds or something. Um, he, he's actually kind of jacked in real life. And I'm looking at the guy, I'm going, man, in another situation, this guy would be kind of a stud, but I can't imagine any, you know, you know, woman, well, not any woman, but like, you know, I wouldn't see him as like a a grade A piece of male Hollywood ass (laughs) as, as Loki. Right. Right. And so the guy, the the woman has been connected to, to everyone from Tim Tebow to John Mayer is now dating Loki. I believe we call them, uh, Hiddle Swift. Yes, we do. I, I, don't, I did not steal that. I'm not sure that came anywhere else. So I'm going to tie this into Night Manager, which I still haven't watched, but which is getting great praises, has been nominated for a bunch of shit, um, including Emmys, uh, since uh, we last talked. So go ahead. If you were to see him in, in, um, in The Night Manager, which I'm sure you will, oh, yeah. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm just getting ready to watch it for the, the second time. You know, you know how you can like protect files on your GVR? Yeah. To not be auto-deleted. Like, that's one of my few protect... That and Vikings, I protect it to not be deleted. Go ahead. So, if if you see him, or when you see him, um, and you see his physicality in, in that role, I mean, you'll... You won't think for a nanosecond why she was attracted to him. I mean, he is just... He's great looking, got a great physique, um, he's charismatic. Um, you know, he's he's a great, great, you know, piece of ass for her. And he, he is, by all accounts, like many of the Marvel people, him in particular, by all accounts, is one of the sweetest, most humble, and greatest team players in Hollywood. 
Yeah, he he gave great interview on on Colbert. I mean, yeah. he was really good. I mean, you know, his Loki has been compared to the joke Heath Ledger's Joker as the best two comic book villains ever, essentially. Wow. And, wow. and if That's... you really look at the fact that Loki's been in three plus movies and is going to be in at least one or two more, um, including the uh, Thor uh, three next year, directed by New Zealander Taika Waititi, who we're going to come back to real soon because of his amazing movie Hunt for the Wilder People, but. He, he he's actually a past uh, Ledger because he's had so much more time and so much more material, and it's just the character is more three dimensional. I mean, Ledger's just a psychopath. He's like you know he's like Hannibal Lecter. Uh, Loki, you know, you truly yeah. feel bad for at times. He, he's tricking the audience just like he's tricking his brother and so forth. Right. So, but but the real question is not why is she attracted to him, but why is he into Taylor Swift, an English no. guy, a Shakespearean English guy. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that that much about her, but um and, and just quick disclaimer. You know how I hate on white girl singers all the time. Yes, you do. I'm I'm a Beyoncé guy, I'm a Rihanna guy. You know, you have my booty mix. I mean, there's not a lot of white voices on there. Right. Even the David Guetta stuff is it's like uh, you know, Nicki Minaj and so forth. Uh but uh <laughs> but Taylor Swift, I actually have more respect for than like Katy Perry and Kelly Clarkson and, and that schlock. I, I do think Taylor Swift is talented, and I actually don't mind her her slightly diva ish persona myself. Um, but she's just kind of bland to me, you know. You know, I'm not into just normal all American girls, and that's what she sort of is. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought that um, based on no research, because I obviously don't spend uh, you know a minute uh, thinking about her or reading about her. But I always thought maybe she had a bad rap like Anne Hathaway or something. Yes. And, um, right? That's a great comparison. Yeah. Except that I think Anne Hathaway is a better actress than she's a singer, but whatever. We don't need to go there. So I'll bet you she's got uh, more substance to a non-trivial degree than you, you would think. Because he, he does. I mean, as you sort of teed him up, he, he's, he, he's, he's a heavy hitter kind of a guy with a Shakespearean background and all of that. You can tell he's got great intelligence by the way he acts and stuff. So I, I don't think she's, I don't think she, she's a whiff-o-matic. I, I really No, I don't, I don't either. It's not that she's not worthy. It's just, it's just a bizarre pairing, that's all. You just don't yeah, see it that much. Right, right. It is. It is like out of, the, out of left field. It's very out of left. I, I wonder if she saw the show and was like, this guy's hot and super talented. I, I mean, if that's the case, then that's amazing. But you know, you know, for a guy, she's tall, thin, pretty. She, she's a romantic based on the kind of and not, and not only is he sweet, but he's super confident and down to earth guy. Yeah, like, right. He could totally be an anchor. Uh, yeah, they're two sweet people. We'll move on from this. I just it's fascinating the 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 <laughs> uh, the, the Hiddle Swift thing. Um, but with Amy Poehler and Will Arnett breaking up, my uh, cynicism about Hollywood couples is at an all time high. I thought that was never a possibility. Two of the great comedic minds out there. Maybe they just they you know they just stop finding each other funny. I just don't. I don't know why uh, entertainment types just don't give up marrying one another because I just don't see how you sustain an, an entertainment-based marriage. Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, no one knows who Jessica Seinfeld is. It's amazing. Well, well I rest my case. Yeah. She. She. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I'm supporting you. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, she's right. She was just an ordinary Jewish girl from somewhere, and. Yep. 
Well, I've sure. I've heard Hiddleston's trying to fast track this, so we'll be rooting for the Hiddle Swift. Oh, uh, yeah, oh, uh, relationship. It's funny, you know. I never know any of this E People magazine stuff unless it's a Marvel Cinematic Universe character, and then I know everything about their personal lives. So, mm-hmm. um, so okay. So we're gonna jump into Jason Bourne, Great. which you and I saw a week or two ago. <laughs> um. I was going to do Hunt for Wilder People first, but let's let's tease that for afterwards. Okay. Okay. So here here is the setup for the Jason Bourne movie. Um, do you mind if I if I just set this up for two minutes and I'm going to just let you just let you rock it? Please. Okay. So the Jason Bourne movie, which was called Jason Bourne, yeah, was released officially July 29th. I believe we saw it July 28th on preview night. Yep. It has made just over $100 million domestically so far, which isn't great. It's made about the same overseas, although it hasn't been in full release. It's not going to make what Born Identity made, which was, what, like 600-plus worldwide? Yeah. I think it's safe to say you were, uh, for once, you were the nervous one going into this. Uh, I was nervous. So, I was nervous. Uh, so, it, it, and the reviews have not been good. Um, they're better on Metacritic, uh, which tends to be more accurate than they are on Rotten Tomatoes. The user scores on Rotten Tomatoes are really not good. People are dissatisfied. We really like this. So I want you to talk about your nervousness, but if you could give us a quick narration of, of your love of the Bourne saga and how that sort of fed into your, your nervousness slash excitement for the movie. Go ahead. Right. So it's, it's a little bit um, it's funny to me what, what caused me to be nervous, but in the trailer... They they hype the uh, the Las Vegas dimension of this story, and, and it should be said they only released one full length trailer for this movie, which I thought uh, was brilliant, but apparently had no effect. Go ahead. So that made me nervous because right. I thought, uh oh, you know, Las Vegas you equals Vegas. trite, yeah. and I was just really nervous about the the Vegas location, um, and that just. If it hadn't been for that, I probably wouldn't obsessed much about the movie. I would have, you know, Greengrass and, and Damon together. I mean, how, how can they go wrong? So I probably wouldn't have worried about it. The Vegas thing uh, got me off, off center, and so I, I was worrying about it. So that, that, that was the whole thing for, for me, um, the, the month or two le- leading up to the, to the film. That's what had, had me tense. But, you, but you've been a born fanatic forever. Yeah, um, you like them way more than me, and I really enjoyed them. But you like—I mean, those were some of the first Blu-rays you bought, I believe. That's right. When you That's first right. got your Blu-ray player, you yeah. got the Tudors, and you got all the Bourne movies. I, I remember right. that very. And, and the Planet Earth, uh, BBC amazingness. Um, uh, you know, they're great. We love Damon. We've argued Damon over Leo before. Um, so, but this is your chance to praise Matt Damon in the Bourne series. So go ahead. All right, so you want me to just react to uh, why I, I really like the, this movie? No, I want you to talk a little bit more about your love for the series and, uh, and, and how that fits into your own Matt Damon narrative. Yeah, well, it's, it is. It's all about, um, it's mostly about Damon and how he, how he um, plays this character in kind of a, a minimalist way. You know, we were commenting, I think, before the movie was over, this, this one. Uh, about how he had like uh, you could count his lines on your on your hands and your feet. Yep. I don't think he filmed a lot in this movie. Let's put it that way. Yeah, go ahead. What was that? I don't think he filmed you know um, too too many days. But, but maybe, uh, yeah, well, go ahead. I see. But I really like that. Yes. I, li- I really like that version of of Bourne. Uh, he's a man of a few words. It's all about his physicality and his face, which there's something about it that I find you know it's really gripping. 
um, the way he he plays this this guy. Um, and then, I mean, just generically, I, I like thrillers, and uh, I happen to like um, the a lot of the the way they've handled action in in the series. And we'll say more about that, particularly in this one, because I thought it was phenomenal. Those two. Um, uh, ginormous uh, action sequences at the beginning and at the end. Um, so, you know, that's, that's why Bourne has grabbed me fr- from the beginning. I really like thrillers uh, with some kind of, uh, you know, high-tech CIA spooky things um, uh, that are woven in. And then, then him, I mean, just some, definitely the character for me has been pretty addictive. So when the first one came out, he was already very famous and he just continues to get more famous. Right. But what's interesting about the Bourne series, Dad, um, if you take out the Bourne legacy with Jeremy Renner, which was not good, but was not his fault at all. I mean, they even had Rachel Weiss in the movie, and she couldn't save it. And it, she, it, it, she was, could, it was just so not bad. Yeah, it was so bad. But it was not. It was not those two actors' fault at all whatsoever. No, sure. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah. It was. It was the writing. Right. So the Bourne identity came out in two thousand two. And it was not long after Ocean's Eleven had been released, actually. Oh, really? So, yes. So since 2002, oh. you've had The Bourne Supremacy, The Bourne Ultimatum, the other two Ocean's movies, Syriana, The Departed, The Good Shepherd, Green Zone, True Grit, The Adjustment Bureau, We Bought a Zoo, Elysium, Monuments Men, Interstellar, The Martian. All those movies with Matt Damon since 2002. Mm. Many of which he was a leader, co-lead in. Mm-hmm. So, but what's really so interesting about the Bourne saga is that it wasn't set up as a traditional trilogy. That's just how it sort of came out. But it's one of the only trilogy where, for the most part, the money and reviews say that the movies get better as the series goes along. Yes, right. And, and as someone who initially didn't, initially didn't love Bourne Ultimatum, because it was, for me, even for me, a little too shaky cam, mm-hmm. it's the most memorable by far. And there's some character reasons why I think it's the most memorable. Um, and, uh, you know, so then you had the Bourne Legacy with a totally different actor and, a to- and no Paul Greengrass directing. We'll get back to him. Yep. And now they're deciding to reboot it, uh, deciding to reboot it. Um, and, you know, I, there was no way they were going to live up to expectations. But as I, as I teased before, they only released one trailer, Dad and they even little things like you know the 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 outdoor fight with his shirt off in the beginning and he decks the guy with the left coming out of nowhere sure the version they showed in the movie was from damon's back which was actually yes. a less cool shot the shot yeah, you in know, the trailer was cooler you saw it right. straight up him knock the guy right. out and that's funny because i was like scratching my head without scratching my head during that sequence i said where's Where's the trailer segment here? This isn't. This doesn't match up, sync up with what we saw. And that was tra- my initial reaction. Interesting. But this is one of the few cases where the director, Paul Greengrass, where the director of a movie told the studio to not reveal almost anything in the trailer. Oh. And they listened. Right. And that was part of why we love this movie. And not only was the Vegas thing a tease, they do go to Vegas, but it's not nearly a huge part of the movie. Right, right. And, and, and the stuff that happens in Vegas is really fine. And, you know, yeah. there's not like uh, and, slot and, machines. And the, and, and the opening 20 minutes, which is some of the best opening 20 minutes of any action movie you'll ever see. 
That's right. Had so many surprises and things that we had no idea about going into it. Right. Right. And so this was one of those cases where you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You show too much footage, like with Civil War or you know, or, or X-Men Apocalypse or these movies that I like, but I get spoiled on them a little bit. And this one, we had, you know, they didn't get people excited enough. Now, I'm not sure releasing another trailer or two with other footage would have changed the fact that this movie is going to make maybe $300 million, which is less than half of Ultimatum. You were a little nervous going into this. I had such low expectations. I ended up loving it. So give the viewers a little overview and then we'll rate it and move on to some other topics because we had a really fun time i mean i was this honestly i was gripping my seat more in this um in terms of not losing focus uh i think since creed i would say in terms of an entire movie of being Mm -hmm. you know i mean even force awakens and civil war which i loved you know i shifted in my seat a couple times i did not move i think i even went to the bathroom but i sprinted back and forth early on in the movie right right and i didn't miss a beat like mentally like as soon as i sat down even before i sat down i was back in it go ahead we remember this is a mostly non-spoiler review so this is not right. Right, I, I assume that. Um, so I, I wasn't going to talk about okay. the big, the big thing okay. that 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 we won't talk about. Yes. Um, so going back to the trailer, just for a second, you know, in that the Greengrass interview that we listened to, which was, was who was he talking to? That was Empire Magazine. That was Empire, right? Right. Yeah. So it was really interesting. He said that you know they screened it for the uh, for the execs, and they loved it so much that, that they told him that they didn't want him to do any any pre screenings. Right. You, you, you remember us- that? Yeah, but usually pre-screenings can also be a sign of nervousness. They didn't pre-screen Independence Day. They didn't pre-screen um, oh. Suicide Squad. Even though Suicide Squad is making a ton of money, it's got horrible reviews. They didn't pre-screen. They did pre-screen Beyond, and that I thought was going to drive fan uh, fans to it because it is so good and well done, and the early re- reviews from the pre-screenings helped, or I thought they helped. We'll get back to that mm. in sort of the bizarre box office summer, but um, that's interesting. But that's, I think, is, is of a piece with what I was saying about the trailer. The, 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 you know, they, they optimistically gave the American audience too much credit that you know, yes. we would yeah. reward them for not ruining the movie experience. Right, and and you know I can see why the execs and and I didn't think that I didn't think that that Greengrass was spinning the whole thing about not not doing pre screens. I mean, I thought he was saying what he meant to say uh, instead of spinning it. But that the, the execs really did that had a tremendous amount of confidence in it, which is basically what he said. And I can see why they had a tremendous amount of confidence in it because I think it's 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 a it's a really nicely built movie right in in the tradition of of the of the first three. I mean, so, th- yeah. No, go ahead. So I, I mean, I bought the film. You know, you either you either swallow a film or you don't. You yeah. swallow it hook, line, and sinker, or, or you don't. And I, I really bought it with with only two exceptions. And I'll talk about those in a minute. But um, from the beginning, the the whole uh, the whole born being a boxer in. Uh, rural Greece, which was a little bit like Creed boxing in Mexico, but whatever. I, I think that was, and I mentioned that in the trailer, the way he he dropped the guy with one punch was like, I love that stuff. You know, I, I love great. I love real hand to hand boxing. God, right. so it was a great way for him uh, to stay off the grid and continue to be a quasi assassin. I, I think you know, I felt like it fit with the storyline. It had been you know like ten years since it was ten years post Ultimatum and and the whole. Blackbriar thing being exposed, and um, so I bought that as a way for him to stay off the grid and continue with his, uh, you know, his professional, uh, um, uh, his his profession. 
Well, just wait, just really quickly, if I can, if I can, uh, if I can push back on that a little bit, he hasn't really been an assassin since like the middle of the first movie. I mean, that's the whole point: is him trying to not be an assassin, right? Well, but he, but he behaves and reacts like an assassin, other than assassinating people. I, I would I mean, say he's more like a ninja, but yes, I know. What yes, you mean. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like Wolverine, which I made the connection. Maybe we'll right. get back to. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And then when, when they move to Athens, I just love that whole anti-government protest thing in, in, in the center of Athens. And then that ultimate motorcycle chase scene is, is incredible. I mean, really incredible. And by the way, Demi just got back from three weeks in Greece, my roommate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I didn't specifically ask her about Born. I didn't know if she knows what that is. But I sort of gently asked how the situation was there. She's like, oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, every time I talk to Greek people, you know, it's like we're seeing one thing on the news. You talk to anyone yeah. from Greece, it's like, yeah, everything's fine. No big deal, you know. Right. So, but, but they did capture the spirit of historical moment. Go ahead. And that's the same thing that happens when you talk to an Israeli, right? That's true. It's the same. It's the same deal. Um, I really like the fact that uh, in the in the evolution of the born uh, identity crisis uh, theme that's been constant through the four, that now they bring his dad in into that into that um, yep. into that story, right? Into that thread into the yeah. into the that was uh, a little bit of like uh, Tony Stark, Howard Stark stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, that that whole backstory. That his dad was a you know a Treadstone Nexus. Um, I guess I shouldn't say anything more about it than that. No, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, if you can't figure out early in the movie that his dad's involved somehow, we won't say how. If he's a good guy or bad guy, go ahead. Okay. Because actually, I wasn't sure on that count until way late in the movie. Yeah, exactly ahead. right. Yeah, they cool. they kind they kind of tease it and tease it, and then they they finally resolve it toward toward the. the I mean, they they completely resolve it by by the end. What the, what the total explanation of the role is his dad's role. And then I bought Tommy Lee Jones as Dewey, um, as a high up. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. He was basically the the e- eviler version of his character in The Fugitive, right? I mean, right, right. But I mean, he does that so well. Who he does cares? It so well. Who cares that it's that's one of his derivative roles? I mean, he's just great at, as that persona. Does anyone deliver condescending semi insults better than Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> he's so good. Yeah. He really is. We're going to send Adolf Hitler to personally escort him back to the gates of hell. <laughs> so I thought they set him up perfectly as, as, you know, why Tommy Lee Jones' character, Dewey, should be in, in, a, in, a, in, in uh, Jason Bourne's crosshairs. Okay, so let's just set this re- up real quick, and then we can um, you know, give a, a re- quick review, because we can't talk about too many spoilers. So there's only a handful of main characters. There's Matt Damon, obviously. Um, there's Julia Stiles, um, who's very important. I'm not going to say anything more about her, but she... It was, it was great to see her back, though, right? She's I mean, so it's, fabulous. Such a, great, such a great character. I don't know what happens to these women actresses when they hit their mid-30s, and suddenly no one wants them. It's really it's really pathetic, but it, she's so talented. Um, she, looks, she looks the same. She, she looks did amazing. In her 20s, right? Yeah, yeah she looks amazing. She's the same. Yep. Um, and then you have the CIA, and it's basically Tommy Lee Jones, and then Alicia Vikander, who is maybe the weak link of the movie, though I'm not sure it's her fault. Right. Well, she she was the weak link in the movie. That that, yeah. that was going to be one of my my two exceptions to uh, okay. how much I I like this. Can you give a non spoilery couple of reasons why she was the weak link? Because I agree with you. Yeah, um, I think she was not a well developed character. 
Uh, she was nowhere as compelling as, as the Joan Allen character, which was the equivalent for Vikander's character when Joan Allen played uh, P- Pamela Landy. Much, which is a little unfair comparison. Compar- you know, she's like twenty years younger, but yeah. No, but still, I mean, she's a great actress. True, Vikander. She's getting there. I mean, she was great in Ex Machina. That was a tough role. Yes, yes. Which begs the question, why she had an okay American accent in Ex Machina and a terrible one in the board movie. I'm still not clear. Yeah. Um, her, her, I mean, I'm not an accent guy. I don't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, agitate me like, like it does you, but boy, it was, hers was really bad. She just, her, her, she has a little bit of a Kermit the Frog voice, uh, sort of nasally the back of her throat. Um, you know, it's not completely unappealing. I don't find it particularly sexy. Um, but that's not really important. The most, the more important right. thing was that she acted the hell out of her material to the, to the, you know, to the extent that she could, you know, like, I, I, I think that there, in a movie like this, there's going to be some weak links and it's not going to be Tommy Lee Jones and, and Matt David, right? So. Right. I, I think, you know, I think that the, the, the writer, writers, um, got lazy in, 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 uh, drawing out her character. It was like kind of two dimensional, she was kind of a two dimensional character kind of blah it just didn't stand up to uh, the history of uh you know the the main the main persona in in a in a born movie it just didn't didn't hold up and then i th- oh, i'm sorry i think it's safe to say she wasn't exactly jessica chastain in zero dark 30 <laughs> oh my god that's that's an understatement <laughs> But again, we like Alicia, you know. I just tend to compare her to Amelia Clark because they're tiny, pretty girls from England about the same age who are both getting famous at the same time. Yeah. I just find Amelia Clark more appealing, more versatile. She's one of the she's one of the only things that kept me with Game of Thrones. She's what made Terminator Genesis watchable. Um, you know, she's just done more for me. You know, she's more of a you know a blockbuster actress. So this was sort of a, a jump for Vikander from you know right. from indie movies. So I think she can be forgiven. Um, she's just so tiny. It's like Anna. Kendrick. You can't put Anna Kendrick in like a CIA, you know, backer. I guess you could. That would be quite quite funny. Go ahead. So you know me. I'm I'm uh, I'm quick to praise an understated performance if if I think it's understated. But this was not understated. This was un, underdeveloped and and kind of two dimensional. The other thing, the other thing that bothered me a little bit, not as much as the uh, Heather Lee character, was the whole subplot. You know, with the CEO Aaron. Color in his social media company. Yes. I thought it was a little bit of a glue-on job. You know, you know what I mean by a glue-on job? It's one of the better glue-on jobs I've seen, though, in, in above-average Hollywood movies. But I do, just because that actor was so charismatic and felt completely like the character that he was, I thought... He- he did a great job. I don't great think it was about. I, I think I'm just. It's a plot complaint. I think, but I'm, I'm saying it's not a big complaint. But Paul Greengrass, to his credit acknowledge that the reason they wanted to be in Vegas was to set up that plot more than anything having to do with, you know, what we normally think of as Vegas, right? Which I thought was so interesting. And that's just it. I thought it was a, it wasn't um, completely organically uh, integrated with the story. I thought they were trying a bit too hard to be re- relevant. And he, he speaks to that in, in, in the, uh, Greengrass speaks to that in, in the interview that they're pretty captivated by this, you know, this social media Edward Snowden kind of a thing. Uh, Assange, and so they glommed onto it, and right, you had Greece, you had Snowden. I mean, yeah, right, right. So, um, can, can I can I, I can I push back on this a little bit? Yeah, and then we'll give our our final ratings and move on to some more topics. Yeah, is that 
So the first three all had very distinguishing characteristics, and you can stop me, agree with me, disagree with me. The first was just, in 2002, what the next century of action movies was going to look like. I mean, we hadn't... Really, it was like The Matrix, and actually Born 1 came out before The Matrix sequels. So it was like The Matrix in 99, and then Born in 2002. Like, those were the two that reset all expectations about what an action movie could and should look like. The second movie is, in some ways, my favorite, because it was so personal, because it starts, spoiler alert, in the first minute and a half with his girlfriend getting sniped in the back of the head when they're trying to shoot him, I think, and then yes. driving off a cliff into the yeah. ocean and one of the yeah. most stunning uh, driving off a cliff into the ocean scenes. So that one was personal. And the, and the, mis- the, mysti- the, I'm sorry, the mystery component of the second movie I thought was the most interesting. But the third movie was just filmed the best. Mm. If you can get over some of the shaky, excessive shaky camp. But, I mean, even the stuff in the CIA room, I thought an ultimatum look better than the CIA stuff in the new movie. I just, I don't think there's any major distinguishing characteristic that makes this better uh, in any significant ways from the other movies. I still really enjoyed it. I think we're going to see it a second time just because the in-theater experience is so great. And we'll go when we can have the theater to ourselves and not have to worry about anybody else. Right. Well, how, how, how about the two chase scenes? Um, oh, yeah. Don't, don't they yeah. stand out? Yeah, I, I think part of the problem with the movie, and I didn't even see this in reviews. I thought this would be a, a point of complaint. Although, with this movie, I went out of the way to not read too many reviews because I just didn't care. Um, but, you know, you could say the first 20, 25 minutes opening uh, bit, which is just one long shoot in Greece, is better mm-hmm. than the rest of the movie. Um, but, you know, we, we see this all the time. you got to kind of roll with it. But, yeah, I, I, I do think... Yes, the, the, the two chase scenes might have been the two best chase scenes in the in the series, now that you mention it, yeah. You know, there's been so, obviously, like dozens and dozens and dozens of incredible chase scenes uh, in the last 20 years. These, seem, these two seem to be like the least derivative of any chase scenes that I can remember. Well, I think, uh, Dad, uh, what's also informing this is that... <laughs> You know, so so the Born Ultimatum came out in '07. Okay, this is almost ten years later. Yeah, it's ten years. And since then, we have had dozens and dozens and dozens of superhero and sci-fi movies with so much CGI and special effects. Right. There was not a single noticeable CGI shot in this entire movie. Right. Some of those flipping cars from a distance might have been CGI enhanced or added later. Um, but if there was any, like, C- you know, like when it wasn't Matt Damon, it was the stunt guy. You can tell, like in the Star Trek movie, you could tell when it was CGI Kirk on the motorcycle. In this movie, you never, you never noticed that. Right. And so I think this is the Mad Max effect. I mean, we hated Mad Max, but it's hard for me to argue with the argument of people who liked the movie that one of the reason they liked it was because they were really flipping cars and had flamethrowers mm. and stuff. And I think that's how we feel about this movie yes was yeah. uh, like creed you know is stripped no frills stripped down but very exciting great action but it's all practical go ahead the, the you made me think of another really interesting comment that greengrass said in that interview which was that the born brand doesn't command the kind of budget that like mission impossible does they're they're working with half the money Oh yeah, this was a hundred twenty million dollar yeah. budget, which is yeah. less less than Ant Man, which was the least amount of any Marvel movie ever. This movie mm-hmm. had less money than Ant Man. It's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. So they he Greengrass pulls a lot off on uh, for one hundred twenty million. Absolutely. I mean, he's got locations all over the freaking world. Yeah. All right. So we really like this movie. We recommend it to everyone. Go see it in the theater. It definitely is an amazing theater experience. 
Matt Damon's the man. Yeah, go ahead. I was a very content Bourne fan. Yeah. I'll, I'll just you know w- whether that makes it a you know an eight five or a nine or whatever. I was very content. Well, and this is you know, and again, just to briefly revisit our Leo Damon conversation, which will be ongoing. This is an example of not Damon's finest dramatic work, but also the fact that he a will do and b can do just straight up blockbuster movies. Mm. Like Leo, just other than Titanic. He just doesn't do t- two-dimensional roles, right? He only right. takes three-dimensional roles. Right. I think it's cool that Matt Damon can still do both and wants to do both. I mean, yep. if, if you just remember some, those movies I read to you, those 12 to 14 movies between the Bourne movies that he's done, I mean, it's all over the map in terms of the dimensionality of, of the characters, and that's one reason I love them. Yeah. Um, so this will lead us to our next topic, which is that it's been a very, even though we've enjoyed some of the movies like X-Men and Warcraft and so forth that have gotten trashed, um, you know, for the most part, it's been a very, very weak summer, uh, since Captain America in early May, both in terms of reviews and money. I think this is going to end up being one of the lowest grossing, uh, summers, um, well, it's, it's weak in terms of, of attendance, but does that mean that the product has been equivalently weak? Well, even if we say we liked X-Men and Warcraft, and we're like two of the only people that like those two movies, but even Mm -hmm. if we count those... What, Bourne, but Born and Beyond, you know? I mean, and Beyond, but you still have Independence Day, which got panned. You have Tarzan, which got panned. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the horror stuff like The Conjuring, which got panned. The Ice Age movie, Alice with Looking Glass. I mean, I mean, the, the, the first uh, live-action Alice movie with, with Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter and, and so forth made like a billion dollars. Man. They made a quarter of that with this one. Um, you know, uh, we saw Central Intelligence with The Rock and, and, uh, and uh, Kevin. Kevin Hart, uh, which we liked. You know, it was kind of funny. It's um, fun. But Ghostbusters is way underperforming. Um, you know, but, but here's the reality, Dad. Let me just break it down and I'll get your analysis. Because we really liked Star Trek Beyond. And I talked at length with Matt about this and you listened to that podcast. And, and So that's cool. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about it. But the bottom line is this. Forget the worldwide totals. Domestically, domestically, Everything from X-Men Apocalypse uh, all the way down to Central Intelligence to Born and Beyond is making between 100 and 150 million domestic, which is not very good in this day and age. No. It's just not. I mean, if you go back to 2000, it's like half that amount with inflation, which is not a lot of money. The only movies that have done well domestically are Cap, Zootopia, The Jungle Book, Batman v Superman, Dory, Deadpool... Secret Life of Pets. That's it. You know, all the other good performers overseas, um, uh, uh, like like Kung Fu Panda, Warcraft, Independence Day, made almost all their money overseas, like 73% to 80% up. Um, I think the other thing you can see is that there's a lot of sequels and follow-ups and, and reboots and so forth. So, um, you can work in some Beyond commentary if you want, but do you think this is just a perfect storm of mediocrity? Do you think this is people just wanting to go to the movie theaters less and, and, and how expensive it is? Do you think this is just sequelitis and people, you know, the fact that, like, really of the top 20 movies, almost every single one is a sequel, a remake, or part of a series. Really, everything. Yeah, you know, I, I would say, I don't pretend to really understand uh, audience behavior, but, um, and consumer behavior in in this context, but I would say it's 
It's everything you've said. There could be um, you throw into the admixture Netflix and Hulu and Prime, and maybe you know people are maybe becoming more and more dependent on those uh, uh, you know media media platforms. It's possible. I don't think there's any kind of magic bullet that would explain this being an off summer. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, you know how I always talk about don't look at the opening weekend, look at the dailies in the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth week. Right. The daily totals. Right. So movies like Central Intelligence, like Creed, which made around the same amount of money, was making two, three, four million dollars a day for like weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah, yeah. And so even though Central Intelligence led off with a thirty-five million dollar opening, which is okay given its fifty million dollar budget, the, the fact that it got to one hundred twenty-five million domestic was just because of those one million day, three million day, four million day, two million days, and so forth. Creed was like that too. Um, and it, a, a lot of it are these little comedies like Bad Moms, which has gotten w- well reviewed and is making money. And we might, I think, we're going to see in a few days the, right. the Bad Moms movies with um, Kristen Bell and, and Mila Kunis. Oh man, I can't wait for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not to mention Christina Applegate, who was like the it girl for me growing up with unmarried with children. But um, you know, I, I, maybe they should be moving some money around and doing some more of these Seth Rogen esque twenty, thirty, forty million dollar comedies. I mean, let, let me ask you. Let me ask you this. So we've got the rated R, raunchy, Pixar-style animated movie coming up from Seth Rogen, which I saw a preview for a month ago, Yeah, which is starting to get press. And I think it's coming out in a week, right? Or four, four I believe or five it, days? I, yeah, I believe it, it comes out this Friday. They made that movie on $20 million. Most Pixar movies cost, you know, five, uh, you know eight to ten times that. And or at least five times that, and I, you know, and, and their rated R movies make like two hundred million worldwide, which seems to be a much better payoff. So why not move some money around? Is it just a, a fact of like we need to have these big movies because we can only release so many, and so we need to just take a chance that one of them will hit seven hundred million? You know mm. what I'm saying? Right. Um, it's I don't know. It's uh, well, let's let's talk about Beyond because you and I have talked about Beyond. We saw it together once. I saw it a second time by myself. Um, I, I think Beyond was the, the uh, I mean, we'll take Born out of the equation. So when we saw Beyond, I, I thought it was the second best like genre movie of the year after Cap. Well, I guess Deadpool would be above it in terms of oh yeah, yeah for sure. But in terms of the PG thirteen, you know, Disney comic mm-hmm. book normal stuff. Uh, I, I would say it was Cap and then, and then Star Trek Beyond. But that movie, even though it's getting great ratings from all across the spectrum, people like it, nerds like it, the mainstream likes it, the advanced screenings were incredible. It's so fun. It feels like an old Trek episode, but it moves super fast. But it's going to barely make half of what the first J.J. Abrams reboot made in 2009. So, so there, there's the perfect thought experiment example right. then with Beyond, where you could make a really strong case for there not being a product problem. Right. Right? Right. So how, how do you explain that you have a really good product, although I, you know, I wasn't wild about it. No, I, I know. I have one, one reason, which I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, but we already have shared with you. But um, why, you know, so why doesn't it make some money? It just doesn't make any sense to me if it's strong product. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if people Huge are- Huge brain. Huge brand, huge old brand. It's the thirteenth film, third in the installment, third third installment in the reboot series. I mean, 
you know, Simon Pegg's writing it, Justin Lin. Why, how does it not make money? I have two words for you. Star yeah. Wars. I think now that Star Wars is back and making money and back in as a cultural zeitgeist, people have mentally uh, realigned their sci-fi priorities. And you've got Guardians of the Galaxy 2 also that came out. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. The first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out since the most recent Star Trek movie before Beyond Into Darkness was 2013. Guardians was 2014. Uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens was 2015. Now we're in 2016. By the way, we should mention they had to rush this movie. They filmed it in 73 days. The first Bourne movie took like four months. I'm sorry, the Bourne Ultimatum was like four months of shooting or something right. like that. They made a Star Trek movie in 73 days of shooting. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. So to pu- push back on, on that, yeah. it's, it's a half-century-old brand mm-hmm. with deep ownership across generations amongst its fans. How does it not perform? Yeah, it's amazing. I thought they would make this money just from fans. Yeah. I thought they'd make half the total just from fans. It's like, it's fans, like only comebacks, from- you know, return, return viewings. I mean, how did it not happen? I just don't get it. It's such a great cast, but right. it had a huge drop. I mean, it, look, the bottom line is... It and Born both had a week opening weekends and then had a huge drop off. So if you have a week opening weekend and huge drop off, you don't need to be, you know, um, like a, like a theoretical mathematician uh, scholar to to put two and two together. It's not going to make a lot of money. The question is why. Now we speculate that just people don't see movies during the summer, which in the past has been true. I mean, in the past, most of the the movies that have made money have been in the spring and then fall or Christmas. Yeah. You know, Guardians broke the summer record for August, and now Suicide Squad has crushed Guardians for the, for the new record for August and for, for that part of the summer. I love seeing movies in the summer. It's air-conditioned, you know, you get to relax, you know, watch a movie. I don't understand. So is so if you, you, you use those two examples for the thought experiment, Guardians and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Star Wars. That was last summer, though, you were saying? No, you, well, I, no. Star Wars was over last Christmas, this past Christmas. So I thought you came up with two, two oh, summers. No, I, yeah, I'm, make, I'm making two different arguments here. I'm sorry. One is just Star Trek versus Star Wars, the brands. And the yeah. other is summer movies in general. Was there a second example along Suicide with Suicide Squad is now... Suicide, yeah, right. Yeah. Suicide Squad. Yes. So is, is there... Is there a bro factor here that that it's just the the movies that really Suicide Squad apparently has a very diverse and gender balanced audience. Really, um, I, I should mention actually. I didn't. I didn't. We won't spend too. I can talk more about this off mic, but. Um, me and Matt have been on the Modern Myth Media board a lot talking with Sean about the Suicide Squad thing because Interesting. he's a huge DC guy, Sean is, as is Matt. Uh, Sean actually was openly hated BVS, which is the first DC he's op- movie he's openly hated. and mm-hmm. then he, But he said he liked Suicide Squad, but he's not even defending it that strongly. He's just saying he liked it. He didn't think it was particularly groundbreaking or good. Mm. Even Gabriel has been ripping me for being a DC hater. At, right. at best, that it was okay. And the highlight hmm. was Viola Davis and none of the actual main characters, hmm. um, which isn't surprising. Hmm. I actually predicted in a, a podcast six months ago, I just listened to that Viola Davis could almost carry the movie by herself. Apparently, <laughs> she attempts to do so. Um, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so, you know, the peop- people uh, realize that even if Suicide Squad makes money, the fact that they've had three movies in this new universe, none of which have been good, and the last two have gotten horrible reviews, 
and precipitous drops after the first weekend when the super fans go. If, mm. And as you know, Matt and I talked about in our recent podcast, if Wonder Woman bombs next year, that's it. And then they really have to pull the plug. We think right. they should pull it now, um, but th- then they'll really have to. So you've got mediocrity going on within these various studios as well as overall mediocrity. And I but think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Going back to the Star Trek example, yes. you don't have mediocrity there. Oh yeah, what was your what was your issue with Star Trek? Oh, my issue was that it was too too fast and furious for for me. Yeah, it was just I mean it was breakneck speed action all the way through. I mean I mean to be fair, we were sitting way too close on a way too big screen. When I yeah. saw it the second time, I sat pretty far back on a normal size screen. Right. It was still fast and furious, but it was a lot easier to digest. We we were just for that style of filming and that breakneck pace we were just way too close and the character stuff in the middle is really really fantastic when they when they pair off yeah yeah when they pair off i mean i love the uh, how well uh, they preserve the you know the, the legacy personalities if you will yeah um they do such a great job of that uh i love the deconstruction the reconstruction of the enterprises the, you know the big be- at the beginning oh, and the yeah. end yep um, you know, the, the LGBT mini plot was really nice. Yep. The pairings as you're talking about were great. The, 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 the uh, um, Bones the role pairings, right. Carl Urban and, and Zach Quinto, both of whom, uh, I say, say we both like a lot, those actors. Right. Spock and McCoy were great together. Great. Uh, I, I really love the, the, the Jayla, uh, character. Me too. Matt was not crazy about her. I thought she was awesome. Yeah. No, I thought she was really compelling. I, I swallowed her a client. Because you think she was... she's going to be sexy, but she ends up being cute. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? That that was the great revelation. You're just like, oh, she's adorable and and, and tough. But tough. Like we're like right. That was Matt's main point. Was that even though it's probably a coincidence, she's kind of a modified alien version of Ray from Star Wars. Daisy Ridley. They sort of mm-hmm. similar personalities. They have a staff. They're cute. They're tough. But yeah, she was great. Simon Pegg with her was so funny. The hip hop stuff. And you know, I mean, without spoiling it completely, the Beastie Boys. You know, plot twist. To think that fun. there could even be a Beastie Boys plot twist, but for it to be executed like that, I mean, even Simon Pegg, who wrote it into the script, said when he first watched it, they were so blown away, they were speechless. Um, and actually, you realize, on the, uh, well, I shouldn't spoil it. You realize in the second time, there's actually uh, more going on with the song in terms of what's, like, they start blasting it from the Starbase, too. It's not just coming from the Enterprise. Oh. Like, yeah. Oh, and that Starbase is one of the, looks like, I mean, there was, the, I wonder if this is just a sci-fi boner thing. If it's like people just thought, for whatever reason, this was even more sci-fi for some reason than the past Star Trek reboots. But I think it's it's a Star Wars thing. I mean, look, in 2009... Mm. You've heard me say that the the the, the, the three greatest you know uh, sci-fi uh, space operas, modern space operas that aren't the original Star Wars are Serenity, which we saw together, right? Star Trek reboot, which we saw together, and Guardians of the Galaxy, which we saw together. But in 2009, there really hadn't been much anything. No one knew Star Wars was coming back, um, and. Mm. Because it was an origin story, but the, but it was one of the best origin stories ever uh, in this genre, and and now it's just become episodic, which they make a joke about with Kirk early on in the film. Um, I, I think in ten to twenty years, when we have giant like sixteen K screens in our giant basements or whatever, mm-hmm. and no one goes to the movie theater, this is the kind of movie that will be watched a lot. But it's just in that space of not being, I don't know. I mean. 
brand worthy enough, even though it's been around for 50 years. And the but the main thing that bothers me, I'll let you have the final thought. We'll move on. Is just that, you know, <laughs> this was the second movie this year. X Men being the first one, which a had an amazing cast that has had great chemistry already in past movies. Right? I mean, in both cases, this is the third movie of this crew together. Yes. And they have great chemistry and great actors who have proven themselves all over the place. But they seem to love making these movies in both cases, listening to the actors during and after. You know, J-Law and McAvoy and Fassbender and so forth. Just talk about how much they love working with Brian Singer, making the Apocalypse movie and the Star Trek crew, too. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- no, everyone was saying they were going to quit after this movie. And now, you know, we know Chris Pine's coming back. Quinto is even wavering, even though he swore this was the final one. Now mm-hmm. Quinto is, I think, going to sign on for a fourth movie. Uh, maybe Zoe will come back. I mean, they really love the process, which is why they made it work in a 76-day shoot. Yeah. But apparently making a good movie with a great cast that loves the product isn't enough in isn't 2016. Enough, right? It's not enough. It's not Weird. enough in 2016. Weird. So, okay. Well, we won't go on for too much longer because we've got the second half of the uh, the interview, uh, which I teased earlier, um, where my dad and I talk about some of the best movies over the last few years that have won awards or almost won awards. Spotlight, The Martian, Creed, The Revenant, Birdman, so forth. Um, we've only had one of those kind of movies this year. And that right. is Hunt for the Wilder People by Taika Waititi. Now, Taika Waititi came to my attention because he was hired to direct the third Thor movie, and I had never heard of him, like most of the Marvel directors when they get hired. Never heard of James Gunn, never heard of the Russo brothers. They, they must know what they're doing. But, I, but as soon as they signed him, Ruffalo jumped on board, which no one saw coming. Ruffalo is apparently a big personal fan of uh, Taika Waititi's stuff, as is Hemsworth, who's Australian. Waititi is a native New Zealander. And, I I mean, of all the director hirings, other than Joss Whedon, see the reaction of the... the the the, uh, the cast to be so enthusiastic of some guy that the rest of us have never heard of. Mm. But I saw a preview for this at uh, an, uh, an artsy theater that me and my dad and me and my mom go see a lot of movies at, the Bryn Mawr uh, Film Institute just outside of Philadelphia. It's an okay theater, but they have great movies, and uh, you see really the best trailers for the best stuff. And I saw the trailer twice when I did a back-to-back with Mom. Um, we saw a documentary about horse racing, and then we saw... Um, God, what was the second movie? It was I can't remember. So we saw it twice. And immediately it felt like a Wes Anderson movie. And being very touching and real, but, but funny and relatable. And being super two-dimensional, but super three-dimensional at the same time. The way the camera moved from side to side. Um, and that turned out to be the case and more. I mean, this felt like... The 2016 New Zealand version of Moonrise Kingdom mixed with Rushmore, mixed with right, <laughs> right, right, right. It, it was it was a lot like Moonrise Kingdom in yes. in some ways. It was. Yep. Um, you it saw it was, twice, right? I did see it twice. Yeah, we've both seen it twice. Right. Um, maybe it was if it, it was possible it got better the second time, which I, I never for me it did. Yeah. For me it did. Um, you know, with with, with a good movie, uh, I'll often get more emotional the second time yep. because I'm paying less attention to to tracking the plot because I know the plot. So it it made me more. You know, I had more emotion and emotions uh, the second time for sure. It was obvious to to me that I uh, reacted to it even more. I didn't think it was possible to like it even more after the first viewing, but I liked it even more the second time. There's something about young directors who can make 
unknown and inexperienced children actors brilliant oh this kid was brilliant oh my god i don't know how how you how you pull that performance out of this kid but i mean it's 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 in perfect parallel to to both the boy and girl lead characters in in moonrise who actually yep. were 13 in fact the, the lead boy who's jewish got bar mitzvah during the filming i believe yeah, yeah. Of, of of Moonrise Kingdom, or shortly thereafter, these thirteen year olds have done nothing before, completely steal the movie. I mean, it's their movies. It's 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 Ricky's movie. Yeah, but even Jason Schwartzman in uh, Rushmore in two thousand ninety nine two thousand I can't remember, which is in my opinion one of the greatest comedies ever and one of the greatest movies ever, and probably yeah. still my favorite Wes Anderson movie ever. Although I do love Moonrise and some of the other ones, but Rushmore for me I could just really watch over and over again and, and have and do. And you know Jason Schwartzman was like seventeen eighteen playing like a fifteen sixteen year old, but still he hadn't done anything. I mean he's from Hollywood. Hollywood royalty, but he hadn't really acted in anything major. And the performance that, um, and and it should be added actually, that a lot of his compatriots at his private school and then public school were 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 truly younger than him in real life. They were playing, they were playing their ages. They were actually Uh kids. So you had Wes Anderson juggling a whole you know bundle of kids. I don't think it's a coincidence that I love these comedies with these great kid actors. There's just something special in like Natalie when she was young. All the great work she did. You always talk about that. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. And how, what what was the Sunshine movie? Oh, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, God, that's a good movie. Yeah, another great kid kid movie, right? Another great kid movie. Hugo. Hugh, right, Hugo. Hugo, yeah. 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 And Nat- Natalie was so great in, in, in Beautiful Girls. I, I, I just watched it again. I mean, <laughs> man, that is one great... One great uh, character portrayal, yeah, but no, no better than than Wilder people. No. I mean, R- Ricky was just something else. <laughs> Shit just got real. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Sam Neill with, yeah. with the deft touch, yeah, just sits back and enjoys the ride and, and contributes yeah. when he needs to. He was so good in that role. I mean, he's like he's made for that. But Julian, whatever his last name is, he played Ricky. I mean, his his last name is Dennison. Julian Dennison, which is interesting because he's at least part Maori. He's part native. Yeah. And, and Taika Waititi, you can tell by his name and his look. By the way, listeners, if you've seen Wilder People, Taika Waititi plays a hilarious cameo role in his own movie. In that movie, as as a priest, as a terrible priest trying to communicate some, <laughs> you know pithy nonsense about jesus <laughs> being in a, maze. A, whack, a whack job priest yeah it's oh not as good God. as it's not as good as baby jesus but it's in the same uh yeah. it's in the same field it's great in there and, and i remember when we first saw it being like i think that's psycho itt but i didn't want to take a look yeah. on my phone or anything but um would, would you say that his version of the priest was a little little kramer-esque well he certainly had the kramer hair <laughs> right yeah, yeah he certainly had the kramer hair but i thought this was uh, i'm not gonna say this is better than all the west anderson movies but it was deeper i mean you have to admit emotionally i don't yes. think ex- yes. but rushmore gets the closest to a true three-dimensional emotional arc because because of the weird creepy love thing going on with him and the teacher um like a reverse lolita or something like that but this this had i mean this this you might not cry but you're definitely going to get choked up and tear during this movie at yeah. times which doesn't really happen in west anderson movies not really the point yeah right west west anderson doesn't do that much character development you know the characters don't change but in in wilder people there was a ton of character development sam neill's character 
uh, Heck and and Ricky's character and uh, the mom, the the adoptive mom. Um, yep. So I mean the the foster mom. Foster mom is uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The just, the Ricky birthday song is one of the best scenes ever. She's playing on her little harmonium or whatever she has. Unbelievably beautiful scene. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, and what's amazing I noticed on the second time, I don't know if you consciously noticed this, is that there's at least eight or nine montages in the movie because it's like really pithy, touching scene, montage with great music in the wilderness, really hilarious scene, montage in the wilderness, you know, really sad, disturbing scene, you know? I mean, usually you can't get away with that. You know, I mean, some of the Rocky later Rocky movies get mocked for just being constant montages, for example. Mm-hmm. But because it was New Zealand... And because it was these two, and you really bought the stakes of what was going on, yeah. And the the photography was beautiful, and the music selections were fantastic across right. the board. Maybe the best, one of the best uses of Nina Simone in a movie I've ever yeah, seen in my right. life. Right. Um, that you just don't realize that there's all these montages going on. No, you don't. You you really don't. You, you don't see it. But 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 you want them, unlike most movies, because the scenes that are either incredibly funny or, or incredibly touching, you know, are so affecting or so hilarious that you like want the break almost because you know there's more coming. Like you <laughs> you know you 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 couldn't have a movie of just those scenes one after the other. Like you would just burst open with yeah, uh, emotion and humor and, and crying and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, they're like a great palate cleanser each time. Yeah. So go see uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. So, all right, Dad, well, why don't we wrap um, <laughs> part two, which is going to be part one in the final podcast, mm-hmm. um, on a little TV talk, and then we'll sign off. Great. All right. Um, so, um, hard to know where to start. Um, Netflix seems to be taking over the world, right, yes, at this point? Yes. Yeah, and they, they offer an awful lot of good content. An awful lot. I mean, they're producing like big budget TV shows and movies. I mean, yep. they're you know we're going to start seeing budgets from them in, in the in the nine figures, I think, in the near future. I could be wrong. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, it's hard to know what a series like Daredevil or Luke Cage costs, or even Narcos, or you know any of these. It's hard to know what the budget of these series are. Mm-hmm. You know, they say the Game of Thrones costs like ten million per episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know yeah, if I but that's that. that's Game of Thrones. I mean that that's a huge, huge uh, uh, production as opposed to um, Daredevil or JJ or. Well, I actually thought that was on the low side. I thought that would be. I was surprised at how I thought it was going to be closer to twenty million an episode. Yeah, right. What what what, what does Vikings cost per uh, per season or per episode? I, I don't know what it costs now. I do know in the first shortened season of what was it eight or nine episodes that they drop like fifty mil. So they could be up in the ten million per episode uh, area, yeah. although with the double season, I'm not sure. Point right. being, people are seeing fewer movies and watching tons more television. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. People watch so much TV and Netflix. It's yeah. not hard to understand why they don't want to go to the theaters and spend all that money and time and so forth. Um, which is very disturbing to me, as you know, because I love movies way more than television. Always have, always will, and. I know the movie experience will never completely go away, but you know the fact that you have to go basically opening night at a major theater to get a good crowd for any of these movies is really sad. 
Mm. But on the other hand, we're getting great content, you know, for not that expensive on, on Netflix and television. Right, right. Um, and just to run through a few, um, so we got Luke Cage coming out in the fall which would be great, <laughs> you know, mostly just because for me, for the Jessica Jones connection, but they're making it super hip hoppy inner city, you know, like this, this is going to be e- even grimier p- perhaps than Jessica Jones and Daredevil. Um, I think it's going to be a little, bit, a little bit slower paced. You know, they said they wanted to pace mm. it like the wire a little bit. Well, that's, that's, that's good for me. I, you know, I love the slower p- paced stuff. And then when there is violence, it, it makes it that much more interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know what else. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, like what, have you been watching anything in particular on, on, online? I mean, are you mostly, uh, Netflix at this point? I guess not. You mentioned a show on HBO that you wanted to plug. Yeah, I'll, I'll go in anywhere where, where, there, where there's decent content. I mean, sure. you know, I watch Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, uh, on, uh, on Netflix, but, you know, m- maybe my, my favorite, uh, miniseries ever. Uh, was on Sundance, I believe, uh, the, the Honorable Woman, which I think is head and shoulders above everything. Well, it may have ever. been on Sundance, but it was mostly watched on Netflix. Correct, correct. Which just right. proves my point, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Night Manager with uh, Hiddleston is AMC, I think, maybe? And, and Right, and that'll probably hit Netflix, too, you'd think. Um, but yep. it's little things for me. Like, you know, it took, it took me forever to watch the last five or six S.H.I.E.L.D. episodes. And I know this sounds really dumb, but I knew it was coming to Netflix, and I wouldn't have to fast-forward through commercials. Oh, interesting. And so huh. I could just binge-watch it without having to touch a remote. So has season one, for example, showed up on Netflix yet? Or, of or what? S.H.I.E.L.D. No, season three is on S.H.I.E.L.D. They they dropped the most most recent season like two weeks after it left network. I I didn't know that. Yeah. So season three is already on Netflix. Yeah, that's how I that's how I watched the last five six episodes. Oh, I I didn't know that. We both we both love the cast of Shield. I, I'm starting to wonder how much longer they can go with the Hydra thing. I think they need to shake things up. And since you're not going to shake up the characters, because why would you? You have to shake up the format. I don't know if, if it, network television has the guts to do something like that. You know, if, if you read the, uh, the wiki page for season three, um, the various producers and directors and Whedon's and whatever, they're, they're talking about how season four may be quite different. They're, they're, they're alluding to its being different. I mean, the fact that you got the Whedon brothers behind it, you have to think they're at least considering shaking things up. Yeah. No, it, it certainly sounded like it from these direct quotes that are on the wiki page. And in most shows, that's the case. I mean, Battlestar's fourth and final season was way different than the first three. Seinfeld took off in the fourth season. It hadn't really taken off up right. until that point. Uh, Wire season four was the most different and many people considered the best when they were just in the schools the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um Vikings, I can't comment on. Uh, yeah, I mean, Homeland, you had Brody for the first three seasons. They had to break out of the Brody storyline before they could start a new storyline in season right. four. Um, right, but Vikings is a good example. They're, they're on the History Channel, right? So th- this good content is, is all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, great content. You know, Vikings is great content. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, I, I think what's going to make it even harder for people to go to the movies you know, some people just have Netflix and or Amazon Prime and like don't even have cable. Yes. And now you can sign up directly to all the premiums. 
without having to go through your cable provider. So you could independently get Showtime for 10 bucks a month or HBO for 10 bucks a month. You can link it with your Amazon account. I mean, it's crazy what you can do on uh, online. You really don't need a, a television. Netflix recently raised their price from 7.99 to 9.99, which people weren't happy about. The reality is they've added a ton of bigger budget movies, which is the one thing they've been lacking all these years. And you know, you find little gems that you forget about. And and I and I got my dad recently to watch uh, one of my favorite sort of under-the-radar um, movies, which was V for Vendetta, um, which was... God, I always forget his name. So the, the guy who was the, the uh, first assistant director on The Matrix movies, oh. who has an Irish last name, yeah. I'll find this. The Wachowskis got him the funding in the go-ahead to 2V for Vendetta, which has some stuff from The Matrix visually, but is really its own thing. Go ahead. Yeah, it's completely its own thing. And, and the Wachowskis wrote it. Yes, James McTeague is his director. Uh, Chesky's, McTeague, uh, yeah, Chesky's wrote it based on uh, an extremely famous comic, uh, or I'm sorry, graphic novel by Alan Moore, who is also known for The Watchmen, which was actually an inferior uh, uh, translation to the screen, from what I understand, from what's considered to be the best just standalone graphic novel of all time is The Watchmen. Uh, but V for Vendetta is based on a real event 400 years ago. The guy named Guy Fox, who was, I think, pro-Catholic, anti-Protestant, and was gonna, mm-hmm. and was gonna blow up Parliament. Mm-hmm. And you have Hugo Weaving. I mean, really, the whole movie, other than a few support characters, is Hugo Weaving behind a, a smiley mask and young Natalie Portman. Yeah, it's, that's, and, and, and Stephen Rhea. It's like a really bizarre buddy story in a way, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, Stephen Rea's great, yeah. Well, all, the, all the Brits, uh, you know, I mean, freaking uh, John Hurt, you know, as the big brother right. guy. I mean, it's straight out of 1984, but, you know, me and you have a, have a love-hate relationship with dystopian movies. Yes. Uh, you know, we, we tend to love excellent dystopian movies, but we despise bad ones, I think it's safe to say. Like, Children yeah. of Men is so disturbing, but it's so good. You know, uh, Alfonso Cuarón directed, you know, and and uh, Ex Machina, as we've discussed, is sort of a, 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 at least a, a proto-dystopia movie. Well, you know, the, the thing that's that's really disturbing uh, about a lot of dystopian movies is they're, they're, they're for me, they're too close to, to real, like it could happen. So I find that re- really, really disturbing with the good ones, like... Uh, Children of Men. Well, it's right. also filmed in such a realistic style. Yes, there's, there's, right, it's right. all handheld. There's almost no music. Yeah, camera shake. I mean, you see Julianne Moore get shot through the face. I mean, yeah. it's 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 pretty horrifying. So there's the disturbing great ones, and then there's the disturbing dreadful ones. Now, in terms of disturbing, I didn't find V that disturbing because it it, it felt kind of like a, a graphic novel to me. There's a little bit more a touch pulp, a, not a touch Batmany kind of. Um, well, and what's great about V for Vendetta, without giving away the whole thing, is that like the best comic book movies, you know the good guy's going to win in the end. You just don't know how. Yes. But they, that first set of scenes where he unleashes sort of... And by the way, this is pre-viral internet, but what, what Hugh Jackman's character was doing was very viral in terms of... I, I talk about this with Ghost in the Shell. What they call. Yeah. You, you said Hugh Jackman? Hugh Jackman. And, and I called, I, and by the way, in Les Mis, I referred to Victor Hugo as Hugo Weaving at one point. I, can't, I couldn't edit it out. It was too tight, and it was just funny. I was like, oh, I've said Victor Hugo, really dumb. Hugh Jackman. Hugo Weaving's character, you, you, know, you immediately buy as a total badass. And immediately. Has the skills and confidence and is able to tap into the public's imagination, right? Yeah, and what's interesting is that, is that that movie was criticized when it first came out for being too po- 
post 9-11-y. But when you watch it so many years later, you realize that it was actually ahead of its time as opposed to behind its time. Totally. Totally. It it was talking about the post-post 9-11 era. That's right. No one knew it at the time. Right. I thought the themes were completely uh, either unique or just uniquely executed. And the characters, while they may have been archetypes... Oh, and this is the point I was getting to, is that... um, I was going to say Hugh Jackman again. Hugo Weaving's character seems like totally a good guy till about two thirds in. And then he does something that makes you question whether he's really a, a good guy at heart. Um, but between him and Natalie, they help, they help sell it. And, uh, you know, for a still young Natalie Portman, who was traumatized coming off the star Wars movies when that movie was made, um, the star Wars, the dreadful star Wars prequels, um, uh, you know, her confidence, I mean, her affection for Hugo Weaving was palpable. Yeah. Even though yeah, she yeah. never could touch her, or I guess she touches him once maybe, but she never sees him. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, it's so small in some ways because of it, it's, it's just those two so much uh, of the film and they're so phenomenal together. And his, he's so charismatic somehow behind that mask. You know, you don't know how he does it, but what a, what a performance amazing i mean you just got to see it for those the you know rubbing together those two actors it is great so you know how do we get more of these type of creed and v for vendetta movies that are like 35 to 50 million dollar budget or deadpool which is 60 million like if i'm if i'm a studio why not gamble on more movies that could be really cool that cost you know a quarter of what these other movies cost yeah, I, I don't know what the answer to that is because it makes it would make perfect business sense from from everything I can think of. It would make perfect business sense to make smaller bets, and uh, I don't know why why they don't do it. Um, maybe for a time that, that they they thought they they had discovered the magic sauce. So you either do a uh, you know a Disney Pixar kind of a thing, and you know Dory cashes in and Pets cashes in. Or you do some kind of a uh, uh, a proven sequel, or you do a a, a superhero movie. So there's those kind of three f- formulae. I mean, I think my theory, as depressing as it is, is it's an arms race psychology scenario, mm-hmm. which is that from 2012 to 2015, okay, you had two Avengers movies, both of which made or approached a billion and a half, and you had Star Wars, which made over two billion. So those are three Disney movies in in four years that made basically a billion and a half or more. No one else has touched that other than the Jurassic Park movie was the one. So you've got four in the last five years or the last however many years. And so they they delude themselves into thinking they can even Mm. approach it. Mm. which is why Batman v Superman, even at $800 million, is a huge failure. They expected to make twice that, I think. I see. Um, and so they just delude themselves into, into you know, that they're going to hit a home run. But the problem is Disney's the only one hitting home runs. Mm-hmm. And so studios like Warner Brothers, who have been way less consistent, and again, you got Warner Brothers making tons of money with shite like Suicide Squad and making no money with a great movie like Creed. You know, I mean, it's the yeah. same studio, it, literally, produced bl- both yeah. movies. I know, I know. It's just, it's very strange. And now that they've combined with New Line Cinema, that New Line was the one who, you know, shelled out hundreds of millions <laughs> for Lord of the Rings, not knowing if any of that was going to come back to them. 
Hmm. So you have two visionary studios now together making absolute shite. Hmm. So, you know, I, I wonder if we're hitting the tipping point on some of these movies. So this is a great trans- transition to part two of the, of the podcast where we talk about some of the better movies. And so it's just a, a final question to you, um, and then I'll transition the Bizzlecast listeners uh, to part two. We talk about Spotlight, Martian, Creed, Revenant, Birdman. Now, there have been some movies that have gotten Best Picture that I think are, are shite or not that good, like Gravity or Argo. But for the most part, you know, every year there's been like one or two really, really solid films. Now, we've had Wilder People. I'm sure there's some more. I know you love the Tilda Swinton movie that came out a few months ago. Yeah. Both of those two movies, I would think, are Oscar bait for completely different reasons. Yeah, I, I think the Tilda Swinton movie may be treated as a foreign film. I'm not positive. As it seemed like Wilder People, too, might also, yeah. Yes, right, right. I, I think it was really done in by an Italian crew pretty much although you know like I said it, it's it's uh it's delivered in English there's no subtitles or or anything um but at any rate yeah it was spectacular I, I'm just gonna stand by what I've been saying and, and I'm, I'm getting more hardcore about which is I'm sick of all these PG-13 movies that look the same, that have the same pacing, they have the same act structure, they have the same feel, same amount of violence, same amount of cursing. I mean, it really is getting to the point where I might just start seeing rated R movies and independent movies. And if it's like Star Trek or Star Wars, I'll see it in the theater, obviously. But uh, but everything else I just might give up on honestly. Yeah, I think we have to have to be more aggressive in going to see in, indie indie films and, and and small Hollywood movies that kind of have a indie feel to them. I mean, I hope this doesn't embarrass you too much, but we're going to go see Bad Moms in a few days, which is getting very well reviewed for a dumb comedy, but has a great female cast. Bottom line is, my guess is we're going to, in, from a sheer enjoyment perspective, going to enjoy that movie more than a bunch of ones we've seen this year. Yeah, but I mean that's who we are. I mean we 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 got we got to see at least a half a dozen re- really good comedies, yeah. really fun comedies a year. Yep. So that was Central Intelligence and yep. this, and you know, we'll find another three or four. Well, we um, got we got we got Wilder People, and then we've got the Seth Rogen, uh, Evan Sausage, Goldberg Sausage, Sausage Party, Park. and then there's the James Franco Brian Cranston one coming out in a couple months, which looks right. hysterical. Um, so yeah, I think we're gonna get that that half dozen there. Um, so, okay. Well, this was great. Thanks for jumping back on. And, uh, the good news is we waited so long that this is going to be Bizzlecast 60, which is, you know, kind of a big deal. I mean, just people just really quickly to plug myself, uh, finally in July of 2016, uh, surpassed over a thousand listens, um, for a month and it is continuing to go up. Thank you for your support out there. We're almost at 10,000, uh, at which point I'll need to sort of re-examine where I'm at with the Bizzlecast. Um, and thank you, Papa Bizzle, for being a big part of it. You're welcome. It's great fun. Very exciting. Yeah, so stay stay uh, tuned for uh, part two. And here we go. <laughs> 